Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane, psychotherapist and the author and originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director in our studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life, our minds, thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. So today I will share the tip of the week about how important our listening is, listening to ourselves and others. And are you listening really? And um, we have an abundance of guests today. I feel so lucky. I chat with Nick uh, Aguirre, a high-performance hypnotist. Nick Aguirre, sorry, Nick Aguirre, a high-performance hypnotist and the founder of Apex Mind Coaching. We talk about the path to take your performance to the whole next level. Then I chat with Lois Letchford. She is a literacy problem solver and the author of Reversed, a memoir. We talk about what can be done to promote success for your challenged students or children. And then I'm so excited uh, to chat with Dr. Eddie Caparucci. He's a licensed counselor and a coach certified in treating problematic sexual behaviors and is the creator of the inner child model for the treatment of sex porn addiction. We talk about his latest book, Why Men Struggle to Love, Overcoming Relational Blind Spots and much, much more. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and podcast, connect with me, through any of the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all of them with Dr. Fujian Singh. I'd love to hear from you. But first, here's the tip of the week. is the only bridge you have to another person. Every individual lives in their own bubble. They take information from the world through their senses, interpret it, predict, give meaning to it, and then store it. Every individual also has desires, intentions, goals, and acts toward gaining what they want. Each individual lives in many relationships and in many roles. So, any interaction between individuals communicates a message from inside. I spoke with a couple that intends to love each other and have a close and intimate relationship, yet they go through defending, coercing, manipulating, and attacking each other as they talk. I talked to a woman who shares her hatred and disgust toward her husband while she wants to keep her marriage. I talked to a salesperson that intends to sell by a deadline and pushes and manipulates and bulldozes the buyer. I chat with a team who wants to get attention of another team but starts humiliating them and in front of other peers too. I talked to a young woman who wants to date and get married 
she acts as if she's not interested in anyone around for the fear of being rejected. The congruence of your thoughts, feelings, and actions, which will be your communication with others, with your intentions, will have a favorable result. When any of those, your thoughts, actions, and feelings, and intentions, are out of alignment, the communication becomes confusing and therefore irritating for others as well as yourself since you will not get the result you want. You will not land that message. It's important to listen to yourself and become aware of what you want. What is the message you want to give? What do you want to create? And then formulate what you want to say. Listen to yourself very carefully since if there are any type of hidden agendas anywhere inside of you, it will show up. It'll show up in your body language. Yes, your body is always talking and relaying so many messages while you're only communicating 20% of the message verbally. Listen to yourself clearly and formulate what you want to communicate so that the nonverbal and the verbal message becomes clear for the person you're communicating to. Since relationships are among people, it's important to listen to the person you're relating to. Listen clearly to the words, the content, the meaning, the nonverbal cues, the body language, tonality, emotions relayed, and intention of their communication. Reflect on what you heard to make sure that you got the message clearly and accurately. Just say, is this what I heard from you? Did I miss anything? Share more with me and listen. Now, if you're negotiating on anything, whether you are, you know, you're a couple, married, or in business, listen for the desire of the person negotiating with you and state your desire clearly. Then align those two desires, which most times are probably different. And um, so that both parties experience being heard, respected, taken into account, and are the winners, feel like winners after the negotiation. The more fulfilling your relationships are, the happier you will be in life. And the only way that your relationships can be fulfilling is with clear and authentic communication. These are the steps, okay? Be authentic, be transparent, listen to people, reflect what you heard with compassion, and listen to your intention, desire, and needs. Share your request and negotiate with respect and honor of both of you and all involved. And at the end, appreciate and hold gratitude. And I appreciate you for listening. For more observational and integrational skills, go to my book, Life Reset, The Awareness Integration Path to Create the Life You Want. Thank you. Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Fujan Zain and I'm excited to be with Nick Aguirre. 
aka Nick Gnosis, and I'll tell you why. He is a high performance hypnotist. So Nick Gnosis, hypnosis. He is the founder of Apex Mind Coaching, an organization that helps elite performers reprogram their subconscious minds for success. Nick uses hypnosis and other modalities to help leaders and salespeople manage stress, break through limitations, and uphold consistent peak performance. Welcome to the show, Nick. Happy to be here. Why hypnosis? Hmm. I've tried so many different other modalities to create change. And what I find very consistently is people think I've had this problem for 20 years, so it's going to take 20 years to solve it. And a lot of people are um, approaching their, their change through just having a logical discourse with someone else and, you know, kind of using that, that critical thinking. And there's a limitation to that. And I think where, where change creates, where you can create change much faster is on a subconscious level. And hypnosis is one of the best tools to do that. Definitely, yes. I've worked, uh, I've worked with hypnosis for almost, I can say 20, 25 years in my practice on a clinical level. And I know that you, um, you're working um, with performance. So uh, there's, an, there's a way that you utilize hypnosis um, with people and their performance, which might be, diff might be different with the clinical aspect of it. Can you share what those differences are? Totally. So yeah, there's, there's sort of the two sides to the practice. One is more of the, the clinical issues. So weight management, smoking cessation, fears, phobias, things of that nature. And then the other side is uh, elite performance, mindset, um, breaking through past limitations and barriers and things of that nature. And I'd say where they're different is with more of the common clinical issues, they're they're so common. They've been, they've been around for a very long time where we have a pretty cut and dry approach. So for a smoking cessation and someone's going to ask me, how long does that take to quit smoking? Probably a session or two, even if you've, you know, been 10, 20, 40, 50 years, it's, it's not super unpredictable. On the other hand, when you're dealing with, well, what does it take for someone to become, you know, average performer to high level or trying to move from, um, you know, I've been a follower in this business and now I'm a leader or I've been uh, promoted or I start my own business. What has to happen for that person to see themselves as, the, as this higher level performer? That's a little bit different. And that's where you have to start. Um, I use the, this onion analogy where it's like peeling an onion where you have to start at the surface of whatever presenting issue the client gives me. And then the more that you talk to this person, the more work you do together, the more you start to unravel that onion and start to see what are the layers underneath that? What are the deeply held things in their belief system, in their identity that are causing them to act out uh, their, their same script every day? And um, the, the analogy that I use for that is I tell people, imagine that you're an actor. You're the greatest actor of all time. You can do comedy, romance, drama, anything. Extremely versatile actor. What happens is the subconscious is driving over 90% of a person's behavior. And it has to be this way because there's a lot of things that we automate and it, it keeps us efficient. We don't have to make as many decisions. But when we have a deeply held pattern, we think that we're this character or this actor and we're acting it all out, right? So it's like, um, I'm, the, uh, I'm the underdog 
I'm the victim or I'm the, the second best or I'm the little brother or I'm this person or this is always happening. That's always happening. They, they have these beliefs that they unconsciously manifest over and over and over. So where hypnosis comes in is if I could tell people one thing, it's that you're not only the actor, you're also the director which is to say that with some work, you can start to rewrite that script on the subconscious level, changing the identity of who you think you are. And then that's gonna create the behavior change. Um, I've had amazing experiences uh, with hypnosis, uh, whether I was the client and somebody was doing that, or uh, as I've done it, I've worked with hypnosis at one point in with the dentistry actually, where uh, I had one client who could not take uh, the medication and numb for numbing themselves. And I had to, I had just learned also this thing of how you uh, persuade yourself that you put your hand in an ice bucket and then even the thinking about it, not even putting it in an ice bucket, but even visualizing that you do and then numbing your hand and then numbing your um, you know, face and your teeth. And we went through the whole surgery together with the, with the client and the dentist. So hypnosis is powerful. It's very powerful because you can definitely um, work with the imagery work and the subconscious um, and the verbal, you know, communication in having the person create a whole new world for themselves. So I can definitely see how that also works in the high performance. So can you share a little bit about how you specifically utilize it in the high performance? You said you shift the core belief and the belief that they have. And um, so share with us. Totally. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned there is the importance of visualization. So when you, when you vividly take in an image, especially in, in hypnosis, when you become hypersuggestible, it affects you mentally, physically, emotionally across across all domains so yeah this was fascinating to me that you can make uh, people uh, produce an anesthetic response in people just through visualization alone it, it's it's you know was uh very surprising striking to me you know when i first learned about this so on the just like you're talking about with um yeah you're imagining your hand in the ice bucket and it's getting cold you have that response you spread it you can do the same thing with visualization in almost anything and it's because once you're deeply entranced in that state, your mind doesn't really know the difference between what's actually happening and what you're vividly imagining. So when it comes to something like elite performance, if this is, let's say, a, a weightlifter who's trying to break through a barrier in terms of how much weight they can move or something like that, having them visualize it over and over, it starts to become familiar. And there's a part of them that believes this has already happened and that it's everything follows from top down and can use this in uh, in business also. So I have a, one of the very common things that I help people with is a fear of public speaking. And sometimes even you know, people who've been in business you know, 20, 30, 40 years, they have to give a presentation. They're not used to it. Sometimes this is more uh, engineers, computer scientists who are not used to um, doing that as a function of their job. And we, we get them visualizing and seeing the whole thing from start to finish. And all of a sudden, it starts to feel a lot more familiar. It's less threatening. And they're, they're prepared for the possibility of success, having visualized it. So they're on a subconscious level coming to expect that. And so it's like, well, why wouldn't things 
go well when they've they're rewriting that script by visualizing it and um yeah did that answer your question Yes, the visualization, what I'm hearing from you is put in, in um, that they see themselves uh, at their best, mm -hmm. whatever they think is their best and optimum productivity, they start visualizing themselves in that space. And I hear that what you do is also, as they're trying to visualize, if there are any obstacles in that, that holds them back in their belief system, then you go in and shift those types of um, belief systems into a type of a belief system that would uh, allow them to, uh, for their whole system to act in a way that produces that ultimate result. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty good synopsis. I like that. So when someone comes to you, um, how do you start assessing and where do you go? How do you uh, create a plan for someone who needs to do uh, some sort of, um, you know, the performance to take it from one level to another? Sure. So before I even take them on, it's worth noting that um, while everyone can be hypnotized, this isn't necessarily the best tool for everyone. So I like to meet and just have uh, a candid discussion with this person and kind of see you know, what's their attitudes towards hypnosis, what kind of success have they had in the past, um, you, you know, how do they feel about themselves? What kind of stories have they been telling? And I have to sort of figure out very intuitively whether or not I think this person is going to be a good fit because I'm really under the gun to get them their results that they're, you know, they're, they're paying for this. They have the expectation. I have the expectation and it's, uh, it's a mutual contract right where we both are we both have to perform right so this is very different than if i'm just going into um you know a typical hypnotherapy where they just tell me a bunch of stuff i pay them and then um you know i don't really they don't have to expect anything from me mine is different where it's um it, it's a commitment upheld by both sides so as far as who's a good fit you know, anyone who has already had some level of success in their life or their career, maybe wants to spread that to another area of their life, or they've kind of, they've been moving up and up and they sort of hit the ceiling. They're, they're curious, they're intrigued, they're open to new and different ideas. As a matter of fact, many of my clients have already been hypnotized or done some kind of, or maybe mindfulness or energy work or something like that, where they've, they've had success. So they have the right attitude. And then as far as the, the plan, you know, I used to have plans of like session one, we're going to do this session two, we're going to do that. But it's so individual that I tend to keep it pretty loose. So I'd say the only one that's really set in stone would be the first session. And we could be meeting anywhere from literally just one time to several weeks or months or ongoing, depending on the nature of what they're trying to do. So during that first session, we dig in deeper into the presenting issue. So I'm going to ask you, you know, how, how long has this been going on? How do you know that this is a problem? Do you want to change? Why do you want to change? Right. Getting, getting deeper and deeper into what's going on beneath the surface. And once we start to get a better feel for what the outcome is, a very clear outcome, we're going to set up some kind of tracking system. So either daily or weekly, because many people have production related goals for let's say sales or referrals or calls or real estate, life insurance, whatever they're doing, they have, they have numbers that they have to 
um, go after. So we set that up together. Um, and then I do a, a suggestibility questionnaire, which I think everyone should be doing something like that if they're practicing hypnotherapy. So everyone can be hypnotized, but it definitely varies a lot. And some people, you're just a natural, you go in just right away. Other people, it takes a little bit more time and some conditioning, right? So we're going to do a questionnaire where I'm going to be asking them things. You know, have you ever walked in your sleep before? Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night, felt you couldn't move your body? Um, some strange questions. You know, imagine a lemon, this yellow, bitter, sour, juicy lemon. I'm squeezing it and then see if they're salivating. And all these questions... To, to see how they're, whether or not they respond. And then we've got a much clearer picture. And a lot of the first session is just setting up um, what that what the vision is. So creating the long picture vision of what is this gonna look like in 30, 60, 90 days, right? And another thing that I do that's really important is uh, we usually record the session and have them listen to it. So we're not only doing this one time, but they reinforce, which has them number one, um, it, it suggests to themselves that this is very important and they're recommitting to it daily. And then number two, it's a conditioning process, like I said. So they get very used to the sound of my voice where you know, after a couple of weeks, I have to do very little to, to get them to go into the trance. They're, they already know how to do it. Yes, the conditioning already helps. So. Um in one minute or so, uh, if there's anything that you need to share with our audience that we haven't really touched upon about hypnosis or high performance that you want mm. them to know. I would say that um, for those who are skeptical about hypnosis, I definitely was too. So I completely understand. And it's, you know, it's mesmerizing. I would say like, if people think, oh, I don't know if I could be hypnotized or would that really work on me? I'd say we're all getting hypnotized constantly by our environment, you know, by through social media, through commercials, you know, think about a catchy commercial song that plays in your head and, and you've heard it a million times. You can't forget it. You didn't try to remember it. Right. So we, we all get conditioned to something one way or the other. You're already having ideas implanted in you. So my suggestion is why not use this on yourself? And for those who maybe you're not ready to work with the hypnotherapist yet or something, I'd say one thing that anyone can do is to just, you can record yourself talking for, let's say five minutes and speaking out your goals in the first person as if they've already happened in the present tense create a five minute recording, listen to it on repeat, especially first thing in the morning, last thing at night, and you start to absorb that. And that's a great way to do self-hypnosis. And uh, you, can, you can do that for free. You can start today and you'll be amazed at what's possible in just a couple of weeks. Yes, where can they find you, Nick? The best way to get a hold of me is um, my website. That is apexmindcoaching.com, A-P-E-X-M-I-N-D coaching.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Don't go anywhere, everyone. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I'm excited to be with Lois Leshford today. She is a literacy problem solver and the author of Reversed, a memoir. She is a reading specialist and uses her non-traditional background, 
multi-continental experience and passion to assist students, the ones that are called or appear to be failing. It is wonderful to have you with us. I know you're going through pain and thank you for making it anyway. Ah, uh, thank you for having me as I am. It's always great to have you as you are. And we wish for everybody to just take us as we are. Yes, I had a skiing accident which limited my output for your listeners. And I, the word they use is shattered my collarbone. Yes. Um, you've, uh, you've had your own ups and downs with dyslexia. You uh, experienced it on your own and then um, experienced it with your son. And then you decided to kind of learn how to go through and um, through the obstacles and definitely flourish, not only flourish for yourself as becoming someone who works with them, writing your own book and your son going all the way and getting his PhD. So uh, this book is about your experience and your son's experience, but there's, there's main points in there that I want us to go over today. I agree. Uh, you know, I think what really gets to me about my story is that it happened by mistakes. It happened by accident. My husband happened to be a professor. I mean, that's okay. But he had study leave when Nicholas was in second grade. And I was able to remove Nicholas from school in a new city, in a new place that was, you know, you unbelievable experience that changed his life and mine and without that I can't imagine or I, I have no idea what would have happened to him because they were the school we were at was so interested in repeating traditional 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 and he couldn't get it and then the school has the excuse to say well look at his IQ that's why he's not getting it as opposed to how are we going to teach this child End of story. Forget the IQ. Let's just teach him. Yes, that seems like uh, there's a particular way that the school system, you know, handles. And there's so many unique ways that children um, need to be learning because of their own condition or their interest, um, their biological component, their, you know, neurological component. And what I understand from your experiences, instead of saying that you have to be this way in order to succeed, and if you're not, then too bad, you fail, that it is our responsibility as teachers and as the community members and parents to be able to find out how does this particular child flourishes yes. and to teach them th that way. So in your experience, what were the ways that you found that supported your son to flourish that way? My son and other students, one of the best is using poetry, preferably poetry that you write hmm. because the child then sees you as an author. Ah, if you can do it, oh, I can do this too. And it might not be the best poetry in the world, but the fact is you wrote it. That's number one. And then you're often writing about what's important to you, not to someone else. 
And that's also important for the child to see. The second is to take any book that you're reading to the child or the child is reading and turn it into a drama. Mm. And you're taking what they are reading and making it real. You're taking it from some abstract ideal to their real world. And the child, and then you're, you're picking up things. You're not just imagining. You're doing a stepping stone between the real world and the imaginary world. And those two things are really transformative on top of how we teach children to decode. But those other two components, the poetry and the drama, are critical components. And every time you do them, you can change the words to use the child words. You're not using book language. You can change it. Would you say these words or how would you say that? So two things that you're using. One is the creativity uh, that shows up and expands and, and, you know, it expands us from that rigidness. And with drama, it brings it to life. It's no longer <laughs> just words. <laughs> and when you say something, you're not saying, oh, I'm angry. You're saying, how would you say those words? So you're getting depth of knowledge. You're getting fluency. You're getting efficacy of a child and of the reader. You're right. Absolutely right. So when, for example, your child has to go into the traditional school system and they give um, him or her, you know, the booklets and this is the way it is and they're coming home and they're having this problem. Are you uh, suggesting that the parents can sit down and teach the child to shift this from the book that is in front of them and bring it or the, the parent comes in or the teachers come in and kind of um, use what's there that everybody, all the other children are learning and bring that into creativity and, uh, and life? Both. If the parent has the time and the energy to do it, it's phenomenal if the parent can do it. But also, you know, if it's done in the classroom, it's even better. And what I think teachers don't realise when you're doing drama, even if your best children are reading, your slowest children have a greater chance to get onto it and be part of the class and see what's going on and learn in another way. Mm -hmm. so, so it's very important. So the concept of the drama that you're talking is create what you see out there into a same kind of a story and allow the child to be part of the expression of the story? Yes, yes. And they see the dialogue. They see the construct of the story. They're seeing much more than just a story that happens in books. Mm -hmm. And is that why you wrote a story? Well, I wrote the story because Nicholas was called the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching when he was seven years old. Ouch. And when someone is given that sort of diagnosis, the prognosis is dire. And every year he got better. And by the time he got to high school and he graduated in the top 20% of his class, you know, doing physics, chemistry, mathematics and calculus. I thought this is a good story. But then when he completed his two undergraduate degrees, you know, it's an even better story. But when he goes back to Oxford and does a PhD, I was blown away. So I thought it's a story that must be told. 
And if I asked Nicholas what supported him to go through this path, what would he say? That's a really interesting question because I did ask something similar to that. And I actually asked him what happened in first grade. My son cried. He has a PhD and he cried. And it's the first time I recognised that trauma had occurred in grade one and we hadn't dealt with it and we had to do something about that. And then I thought, I can't do that. So I asked your question, what made your learning better with me? And he said, I remember the poems you wrote. And this is 25 years ago. And he named the poems. And then he went on and said, the mapping. The mapping taught me to love learning and I never want to stop learning. Mm -hmm. And then he started giggling like a seven-year-old. And he said, you wrote a poem about a witch's spell. And it was just hilarious because I wrote the ingredients for the witch's spell. And here he is still laughing over something that I couldn't write about because it was too bad 25 years later. And that blew me away that we can do these things and think it's not very important. Yet for the child, it's the most powerful thing in their learning. So when he talks about mapping, can you share about what that means? When we were in Oxford, I wrote a poem about Captain Cook with double O's, look, Cook, look, and book rhyme. And we saw a map of the world just before Cook went to Australia in 1760. And then we saw a map from 1500. And we could look at those maps and see the changing map of the world. And I said, look, Nicholas, there's a gap in the map. There's no Australia. Mm. And that put us on a search. What knowledge did Cook have? What knowledge did Columbus have? What knowledge? Where did they get this knowledge? And we're in Oxford and Columbus's map was over a thousand years old. And we saw it. We had we bought a book of Ptolemy maps. And that was the mapping that tapped into his curiosity and had him know that learning is worth your while. Beautiful. Beautiful. Lois Letchford, everyone, um, please get her book, Reversed, a memoir. Lois, um, in one minute, if there's anything that you know, we haven't touched upon and you really want our listeners and audience to know, what would that be? When children are struggling, see them as young people who are of value, not just someone to be pushed aside like my son was. And when we see them as something of value, we'll find a way to teach them and show them that they can join our society. That was such a valuable point, such a valuable point. And it brings people into uh, their strength and their success, a higher confidence, and they will achieve just the love of learning. And it's so sad when we kill off the love of learning because we make it into such a rigid frame. So Lois Lesford, everyone, please get the book reversed and memoir. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And we'll be right back, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I love chatting with Dr. Eddie Caparucci. He is a licensed counselor and a coach certified in treating problematic sexual behaviors and is the creator of the inner child model for the treatment of sex porn addiction. 
Among his many clients, Eddie has worked with professional athletes and television personalities, and he's the author of several books, including Going Deeper, How to Inner Child Impacts Your Sexual Addiction, and Why. And the one we're going to be talking about today, Men Struggle to Love, Overcoming Relational Blind Spots. He's the administrator of also two blogs, menagainstporn.com and sexuallypuremen.com. He is the host of monthly webinar, Getting to the Other Side. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I think this is so important. It's so important because I think that, you know, I, I've been a therapist and a couples therapist for, um, for about 30 years. And not only when I, you know, have my clients who are men and dealing with relationships, but also when it actually comes to the relationship and I work with couples, um, women have each other to share about relationships. They learn from each other. They complain to each other. And um, a lot of that helps them, whether they learn from each other or even with the complaining, it helps them to release it. Men don't have the same thing. Most of the time, if they've learned it from their mother, um, you know, they, they have it as if, okay, I'm supposed to have received something from the female. Um, and uh, it's very difficult. They don't, they don't like complaining. And when the complaint happens, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like releasing. It actually activates them more. So it is so important what you have been writing, not only for men to be able to kind of like see a reflection and understand what's going on inside of them, but also for women to um, to have another understanding of what's going on inside a man's um, feeling and, and, and thought process. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So let's talk about um, what you have and why is it that you concentrated as a counselor um, uh, on men? What is it that it's missing? What do you think that's going on? I know we talked about 14 blind spots and we'll go over and look at those, but what was your inspiration that took you to the path of wanting to work with men? Yeah, well, my, my main focus and what I do in the counseling world is with the, in the area of sexual and pornography addiction. And what I found in dealing with the men in who suffer from this disorder is that a very large percentage of them, and I'm saying like nine out of 10, um, also deal with what I call a low emotional IQ. They have a very difficult time telling you what they feel beyond the fact that they may be uh, sad, happy, um, angry, you know, that's about it. Other than that, they can't really tell you what they truly feel. And even those who can, they may have a very difficult time expressing it and being able to be vulnerable. Vulnerable is a very dirty word among many of these men. But even worse yet is that when their partner tries to be vulnerable and tries to be emotional with them, it increases their anxiety and therefore they want to shut it down. And that's when we go to the idea of men try to fix things. And one of the things about uh, about fixing something is because then I don't have to deal with it. We don't have to sit and talk about it. So in looking at all of these issues and seeing the way they were negatively impacting relationships, plus also leading to a higher rate of addictive behaviors, 
I decided I wanted to go deeper and see what exactly was going on. And that's when I started looking at those early stages of childhood development. And I started to see the pattern of the men I was working with and how that led to that low emotional IQ. You talked about 14 blind spots uh, that you found in men, um, that they avoid emotional pain, they lack curiosity, um, and hy they're hypersensitive, um, they have a struggle to connect, inwardly kind of focused and kind of self-centered, um, limited interest or passion, uh, like you said, low emotional IQ, they hide and lie. Um, lacks mindfulness and the struggle to connect with spirituality, God, or abstract concepts, um, compulsive or impulsive, fearful. They have some mood disorders like depression and anxiety and lack of contentment. Can you share a bit about these uh, blind spots? Yeah, the blind spot, basically what they are is the various uh, attributes or issues that men have that wind up uh, resulting in them struggling to formulate and to maintain or to grow relationships. Uh, one of the most difficult ones or most, um, the one that, that they really struggle with the most is this idea of avoiding emotional pain. So it begins at a very young age where a child is not taught that skill set by their parents. So therefore, for example, you know, I'm a young kid and, you know, I come home and I'm crying and I say, you know, Bobby next door took my Nerf gun and he broke it. And instead of somebody saying, hey, oh, let's, no, I'm sorry about that. Let's talk about it. Instead you get, well, why did you give it to him anyway? And you, you know, you're not supposed to bring your toys outside of the house. And you know what, you, now you're going to have to wind up paying for that. Why don't you just go to your room? So I go to my room, but yet I'm still sitting with this emotional distress. I'm feeling very embarrassed by the fact that kid next door took my toy, broke it. But now all of a sudden my parents have made me feel guilty. This is my problem. This is my fault that it happened. So what do I do with this pain? Well, you know, a child not having a whole lot of worldly experiences and two, being more emotionally focused in their thinking than cognitively based, they come up with one solution. And it's, and it's a wonderful idea. I won't think about it. And then how do they go about that? They learn to distract themselves. And they distract themselves too much TV, too much video game, too much food, too much fantasy in my own head, spending that time there. And they take that same habit and they bring it into their teen years and their adult years. So that inability to sit with this emotional distress, now I'm in a marriage, I'm in a relationship, and of course there's going to be emotional distress. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to uh, resolve it in a healthy way. So I'm either gonna be aggressive in shutting it down or I'm going to withdraw to be able to just Stay away from it. And that's what each of these blind spots have. They have their own um, identity and how they began and originated. And then also what is going to be the consequence of its development. 
in your book, you also talk about uh, the concept of uh, inner child. It seems like you connect the person's world, the way that they are thinking at that moment as an adult, and connect them to their emotional side, which they kind of let go. They're not thinking about, they are not feeling it, they don't experience it in their body. And you bring those two parts connected and connect them together in order to raise their emotional IQ. So share about that a bit. Yes, I, I, I believe, Doctor, I believe we all have this inner child in us. You have your little girl, I have my little boy. And but for me, that inner child is trapped in a time warp back between the ages of three to perhaps 12. And that child represents many of the traumas and or and or neglect that we, we that we suffered when we were growing up. And what occurs is again a lot of those things that had happened we have repressed. We're just not very mindful of them. We, we just don't remember that they existed. But what happens today is a negative event will occur that our kid goes into their storage unit and pulls out something that looks very similar to this. Like for example, perhaps maybe you feel dismissed by someone and he pulls something out of the storage unit, taking him back to the time you went out to go play with friends. And, you know, they sat there, we talked for a few minutes and then three of them said, hey, we're, we're gonna go to my house, let's go. And they leave you standing there by yourself and you're dismissed. And he's tying the two together. So the two worlds collide. And when that happens, the anxiety over the event that just occurred increases dramatically. And what you're going to be doing, you're going to be looking for the sense of how do I escape this? How can I get some self-soothing so I don't have to forget about it? So the inner child is a concept that actually was part of my book, Going Deeper, and how the inner child impacts sexual addiction, which really you could type in any type of addiction and it would, you know, it would correlate with the two. But with an inner child, what we need to be able to do is to understand that our inner child is based and functions on strictly emotions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those emotions are not very accurate. So what I usually tell my clients, what I'll say to them is, hey, what you feel versus what is real could be two very, very different things. Unfortunately, many of us, we run based on our emotions. And, but here with the inner child, what I try to get people to do is move away from that adolescent style of thinking and move to wise mind or move to our rational thinking state to evaluate what's been going on. Um, when you talk about uh, the addiction, the sexual addiction and porn addiction, do you also think that um, having accessibility right now with any smartphone or internet uh, for, you know, a 12-year-old, an 11-year-old uh, boy is uh, part of, you know, the notion of addiction that is getting higher? I understand that, um, obviously, if a, I mean, if the attachments and if the training by uh, the parents have not been there about the emotional 
release, emotional acknowledgement, and all of that, that, that really matters. Um, but even if that's there, don't you think that the accessibility to the porn from a very, very young age also adds to this type of addiction? There is no doubt about it. I'm so glad you raised that, that question because it is so important. We are seeing children as young as five and six who are being exposed to pornography. Average age is now nine to 10. Don't think about it. These kids, okay, because again, it's so easy to gain access to porn. These children are being taught how to love and what sex is about through pornography. So basically, we've had one generation, and we're now going to create a new one and multi, um, multiple more along the way that are being taught as a young boy it's okay to objectify little girls. And yeah. little girls are learning it's okay to be objectified. Yes, and you could see that so much in that because as, as young as 10 year old, they now that they've seen it, they go to school and ask their classmate who's a female now to show a body part, let's say with them. Or That's absolutely, oh, I'm sorry to them in a sexual level and although the little girl at the beginning might feel uncomfortable but it becomes such a norm that they say okay and then you know they do they take a picture of their party part like you know as they're blooming and send it and then they feel bad because then they go around and show this picture to it, and then it goes into the you know the viral aspect of the social media then the humiliation the traumas that start happening, you know, the, the, the desire to have a suicide, cutting. I mean, the emotional baggage and the turmoil that gets created over this early sexualization is humongous. It is, it is tragic. Mm -hmm. It is tragic. And it is becoming an epidemic in this country and something needs to be done to address it. The UK tried to address it several years ago by putting in an age verification program and that thing just collapsed completely. I think we've been seeing Australia is now looking at doing that. We need something that's going to limit the accessibility of porn to people under the age of 18. Because again, they, this is where they're learning how to have a relationship. I heard story the other day of a young couple they had started dating i think they were about 17 18 and they decided okay we're going to be sexual and their first sexual encounter here she is expecting you know this is going to be this tender loving moment and midway through he starts choking her and when she gets startled and she gets upset throws him off what are you doing and he, his response was, well, but that's what I see in porn. And therefore, I would imagine every woman wants that. Mm -hmm. But the, those are the messages that are being delivered. And that's why, to your point, I think it's an excellent one. You know, as we continue to move forward in our society, if something is not done, we are going to create an entire generation of very dysfunctional children who are going to be questioning not just their sexuality, 
but are also going to feel a lot of depression and anxiety because they're not meeting up with what porn says is normal. What is your suggestion? And as we're coming close to the our the completion of our conversation, um, to parents, especially fathers, who they might themselves, um, you know, be a part of this. What could they do and say to for themselves and their children and their boys at this time mm-hmm. regarding this matter? Well, I think first and foremost for fathers who may be using pornography, if one to, you know, what is my legacy going to be? And, you know, what do I want my, how do I want my kids to grow up and to treat, you know, young girls? So therefore, perhaps let's see if we can get help for ourselves so that we're not dealing with the issue. Two, talking about it at a young age and believe it, believe it or not, it used to be that question of, you know, when do you talk about the birds and the bees? Well, guess what? You know what? We need to do it sooner rather than later, because as I said, the age that we're seeing most kids looking at pornography start between you know, 10, 11, and 12. So having that conversation about there are going to be things you're going to see that are not appropriate and they're not healthy. If you do, I want you to come and talk to me about it. You're not going to get in trouble. I want to have that conversation. I want to have that dialogue. But that conversation, doctor, cannot be one and done. It is something that has to continue to be happening. Put the um, monitoring devices on all electronics. Take the phones away from the kids before they go to bed, okay, so they don't have them. And, And limit the amount of time they're going to be spending in front of these. And more importantly, the most important aspect is be engaged with them. Show them what real relationships are and how valuable they can be. One of the, uh, I could call a disaster that I uh, see a lot in uh, couples that I work with is because men have gotten so used to um, porn addiction and just being with porn sexually, that a lot of the marriage is becoming sexless marriages. They can't perform, um, they don't have a desire to be connected. They have, you know, they do connect with their mate in other ways about sexuality kind of goes on and obviously you really can't have a long-term marriages without sexuality so Mm. obviously you know these marriages stop stop working and um, so that's also another downfall of um of what we're facing if men um don't take care of themselves and we we could sit here and talk for hours about all the negative consequences of pornography but to your point one it actually and studies have shown that what it does it decreases the desire that you have for your partner the increase in erectile dysfunction especially among people 18 to 25 that was unheard of years ago and now it's, it's, again, it's becoming more of an epidemic. Yes. So men, please take care of yourself emotionally, physically, sexually, in all ways. So um, please get this book, Why Men Struggle to Love, Overcoming Relational Blind Spots. Dr. Eddie uh, Caparucci. Um, last jewels of wisdom, anything that we haven't touched upon and you really want people to know? Yeah, what I want people to know is that, again, relationships are the foundation of life. We have gotten so busy 
with everything else around us. And we're constantly looking for all these distractions to run away from our problems. And what we need to do instead, be running to other people. Yes. Dr. Eddie Caparucci, everyone, get the book, Why Men Struggle to Love, Overcoming Relational Blind Spot. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.